Welcome to the Let's Talk Compliance podcast series of Healthcare Law Today, presented by Foley and Lardner and PYA. I'm your co-host, Angie Caldwell, Consulting Principal with PYA. Before we begin our show, we want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please visit healthcarelawtoday, all one word, dot com, or PYAPC.com. For today's show, my co-host, Jana Kalarik, a partner in Foley's Healthcare Practice Group, is interviewing Mike Tutor, a partner in Foley's Government Enforcement and Defense Investigations Practice Group, and Valerie Rock, principal with PYA's Compliance Advisory Services team, for a lively discussion on Medicare Advantage, compliance, and enforcement trends. Take it away. Thanks so much, Angie. Hi, everyone. This is Jana Kalarik. I'm a partner with Foley's Healthcare Practice Group. And as Angie said, I'll be interviewing Valerie Rock from PYA and Mike Tutor from Foley. Valerie and Mike, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Thank you, Jana. Um, so I'm Valerie Rock. I'm a principal with PYA. I oversee our revenue integrity services that include all nature of um, post-acute hospital and physician practice coding auditing. Um, and we do all nature of government appeals and as well as routine audits. Turn it over to Mike. Hi, everybody. Uh, it's Mike Tutor. I'm a partner at Foley and Lardner. I'm a uh, government enforcement and, and defense and investigations partner here with a focus specifically on healthcare uh, and the False Claims Act. And so I've dedicated a lot of time to Medicare Advantage and other government programs insofar as they are. Uh, connected with investigations, both by OIG, CMS, and uh, the DOJ. Great. Thanks, guys, so much. It's great to be joined by you today. And so I want to kind of level set for the audience and, and give a little background on the state of what, frankly, what is Medicare Advantage? And let's talk about what sort of what is happening with Medicare population growth, what's happened with Medicare Advantage. Um, that type of thing. And maybe, Valerie, could you kind of launch us into a little bit of that background? Sure, um, absolutely. Thank you, Jana. So I, I think it's good to understand um, a little bit about where we are right now from a population perspective. But Medicare Advantage um, is the plan that is called Part C of the Medicare program. Um, it was designed to allow for uh, private industry uh, commercial payers to take part and administer the Medicare uh, program claims. They're allowed to do a little bit more than what Medicare can cover, but nothing less than what Medicare can cover. So we'll talk a little bit about where that is now the rub. But when we look at where Medicare Advantage is going, we have to look at the population of the United States. And when we look at our current population being about 330 million in total, we have about 58 million in uh, Medicare beneficiaries. So that's about 18% of our total US population. And our baby boomers that are now aging up into this bracket will be fully aged into this bracket as of 2030. So we have about 73 million people that are baby boomers and will be um, moving into that bracket fully by 2030. The MA plans are trending up towards the entirety of the Medicare beneficiary population towards the 50% mark, but it's anticipated that we'll be about 61% by 2032. So if we're about 28 million right now in Medicare beneficiaries that are part of the MA plans, we'll be looking at about 45 million of MA beneficiaries by 2032. So we're going to have about a, a nearly double doubling effect in the next you know, few years, uh, up to nine years, we'll be looking at double the MA beneficiaries. So this is no small thing that we're running into. So of course, Medicare is focused in on the compliance of these um, MA plans and how they're running and um, making sure their beneficiaries are, are covered well. So this is how we end up with our compliance issues and the focus on um, the hotspot it is today, Jana. That makes sense. And I, and I think 
really Medicare Advantage in the past, and I've been practicing for a while, wasn't a big focus of the government. I mean, it was really traditional Medicare. Mm-hmm. I know I'm curious about kind of, and, and I think Mike deals with plans and has experience sort of in that space too. Is there, has there been sort of any trending with regard to, to the population itself, Mike, over the last several years that kind of add to sort of things that are happening in the market or things that plans are having to deal with that may be different than they have maybe in the last 10 years? There definitely is, uh, Jana, and and it's it's interesting to watch the government's increased interest in in Medicare Advantage as these populations and the demographics change. Um, just to back up for a second, I, I think one of the things that's important is that for payers, at least for commercial payers, the idea of the False Claims Act and government investigations into the payments of money are well, they're not a new thing anymore because. They've gotten pretty deep into Medicare Advantage, but the fact that the government is paying the premiums for uh, Medicare Advantage plans is what brings in uh, the scrutiny, brings in the False Claims Act liability, um, and brings in a whole just new uh, area of government intervention and government oversight. And I think uh, plans have really struggled to uh, bring themselves within that compliance regime because it really is different from what they uh, had been doing in the commercial space where if there was a false claims act liability, for example, it was the providers that were making claims to the government under Medicare and other programs. Mm -hmm. And here in Medicare Advantage, what is so different is that the claims for money are really being made by the payers. They're getting the money from the government and then they're providing the medical services. But to go to your question, what we're seeing happen is a change really in the demographics of the Medicare Advantage population. Um, As it started, Medicare Advantage really, um, the the marketing and the purchase of Medicare Advantage plans was skewing towards the better educated people who could make their way either with brokers or themselves through the thicket that is uh, the Medicare program. And they could find for themselves the differences in the Medicare Advantage plans that really fit their particular needs. And so the the skew was towards the better educated. And and as a result, and this is just a fact, the better educated are generally healthier. And as a result, the the need for services is uh, somewhat lower. And uh, they uh, often need less internal help, handholding, and so forth just because they've got the resources outside of the plan programs. And what's happening now, because frankly, the population, uh, that that group is is certainly growing, but the lower income uh, working people who come to retirement age, that population is the part that is growing uh, for the plans. And again, just to quick digression, for for the commercial plans, the commercial population is not a growth uh, area um, between turning commercial insurance almost into a regulated uh, industry, but also just the population trends, there isn't a lot of room for growth. You're going to have to fight for market share just by taking it from somebody else. But in Medicare Advantage, there really is opportunities for growth. And so the major payers and many others are really aiming to grow their population. And the challenge that this brings is that the um, lower income, less educated people, um, they often need more help to get on Medicare Advantage and to take advantage of the benefits that are there and to understand the consequences of going on Medicare Advantage, which often mean, unlike traditional Medicare, narrower networks and a lot more providers that are not in the narrow network of the particular MA plan. And this can come as a surprise and a shock and distress to uh, to patients. So the plans have had to really uh, gear up, build out services that are uh, that cost more for the plans, are more uh, involved on a day-to-day basis with the uh, potential MA plan participants. And we can talk about this a little later, but one consequence that we are seeing is a much greater amount of what is referred to as churn in the industry. And that is people coming on a particular MA plan and then not liking it or 
feeling that they they were misled as to the benefits they were going to get and move into another plan. And this creates some significant compliance issues for the plans and also financial issues going forward. Valerie, can you talk, speaking of sort of the differences there, can you give us just a little bit of background about how the reimbursement from Medicare Advantage works versus sort of the traditional Medicare? Yes, absolutely. So um, traditional Medicare is paid on fee-first service. So we've had our, our normal patterns as we bill out CBT and HexFix codes that we're then paid based on our procedures. So we do a service, we're paid on that service. Whereas Medicare Advantage is actually paid by CMS. So this is how the money flows is from CMS to the Medicare Advantage plans and then to the providers. So when Medicare is determining how to pay Medicare Advantage, they're based on a risk methodology. And that has a lot of constructs within it, but it's really rooted in the complexity of the diagnoses for each patient. So each patient or member of that plan then is has a per member per month rate that is based on the prior year's diagnosis construct that equates to HCC, which is a hierarchical condition code that then has a, uh, a score. That, so that score then, along with the demographic information for that patient and patient satisfaction with that patient and other constructs to the calculation are then created into that per member per month payment. So kind of that underlying theme then is where the risk tends to lie is in these diagnoses for the providers and how they're selecting them. That sort of leads nicely into some of the common issues that, that we've been seeing more recently related to enforcement. And there really seems to have been a focus on the, the risk adjustment issue. So the thing that plays into the money, right? The, the, the dollars that are being spent by the, by the federal programs. So Mike, why don't you, can you give us a little bit of background on kind of the focus of the government enforcement sort of related to risk adjustment. Can you give us a little bit of that, that insight? Sure, it, it's, a, it's a very complicated area, but I'll try and do it at, at the highest level. The fact is, and again, I'm, I'm really simplifying, but if a patient comes on Medicare Advantage, they get a, a certain slug of, the plan gets a certain slug of money for that patient as just another patient coming on. And that's added to the premium payment that the government makes uh, every month to that particular plan. But uh, as, as Valerie indicated, the, what Medicare Advantage attempts to do to deal with issues of sicker patients and higher risk patients is to allow for the scoring of that patient through uh, the doctor's diagnoses of what that patient's conditions are and what sort of treatments they're going to have to have. And the, that standard number, standard amount, is adjusted by a factor that is to take into account the higher risk for a particular patient. And it's the, the challenge is that looking at a particular patient in a snapshot, so as soon as they join the plan, of course, they, they don't have any uh, scores. And so that, as I said, they're that standard uh, amount of money. So it's very much in the plan's interest to get the patient into a, a doctor's office's office uh, to, uh, to do a health risk assessment, which has now come under scrutiny uh, by OIG, and, and to get the person's risk score calculated and then used to receive more money. And the difference is significant. A fully risk scored patient can often yield as much as three times the amount of premium money as a standard patient. So clearly that's a that's a pretty different, a pretty important distinction for, for the plan. Now, one issue that has come up and is being litigated by the government against a whole bunch of plans is what happens if the risk score that was done when the patient came into the doctor that day, it turns out that that patient actually had more serious conditions or for that matter, less serious conditions. And is it possible to do a retrospective chart review to 
more accurately picture that patient based on the conditions that really end up being the ones that turned out to be. So just to use as an example, patient comes in with chest pain. At first, it's thought to just be a abdominal matter, but no, it turns out to be um, a much more serious heart condition. The coding that was done when the patient came into the ER was for the less significant condition, but it turns out that they actually had a more significant condition. And is it permissible? And this is a major issue, again, with, with a whole bunch of plans and uh, the Department of Justice. Is it, is it permissible to go back into those charts, look at what the medical records showed, and then revise the risk score based on the actual conditions? And if it is permissible to do that, to increase the scores, because it turns out the patient was sicker than first thought, um, is it also required, says the government, that you go in and you look for uh, less serious conditions. The person came into the emergency room, you thought it was uh, an MI uh, it, or a stroke, and that's ruled out and it turns out to be something less significant. Is it incumbent upon the plans to lower the, the uh, risk adjustment? Those cases are pending right now in various district courts and circuit courts around the country, and it's gonna make a major financial difference to the plans the extent to which this retrospective chart review is permissible. And if it is permissible, does it have to go in both directions and to what extent? And how does that compare, the plan say, to traditional Medicare, where the auditing process would not require uh, both the up and the down in the same way that um, it's being done in, in Medicare Advantage? So risk adjustment is, is a key issue in the world of, of Medicare Advantage, and we anticipate that um, these cases are going to make their way through the circuit courts. And frankly, there's a good chance, given the dollars that are at stake, that at some point there will be a Supreme Court review of how you do risk adjustment appropriately. So Valerie, I know just sort of listening to, to what Mike's saying, and, and we had talked a little bit about this before, but it smacks, it seems like the payer, the payment sort of issue with regard to risk adjustment is butting up against how coding has happened sort of historically, right? So you would diagnose a patient a particular way based on the visit. And that could happen even sort of in the hospital context. The initial diagnosis of that patient sort of followed that patient, even though you may find out more serious things as the patient sort of had their inpatient stay, et cetera. But how are some of those billing rules kind of pushing up against this? And I mean, is this, it seems to be a problem. Is this a problem? Well, it's what we tend to see is that physicians are not really good at capturing these diagnoses because of the difficulty in actually capturing them. And the underlying diagnoses, they're not exactly sure when to code them or they don't capture them. So part of the problem is just the capture rate and the capture um, quality uh, through the systems because EHRs sometimes make it more difficult to select the code. Um, you're using a kind of a, a system to pull up, like you do a search engine, you have a code that you're looking for. It may not give you exactly the right code that you're looking for. And so you may miss the specificity that you need to capture the HCC um, because you can have unspecified codes that do not capture an HCC and specified codes that do capture it. So you may have stage four cancer versus just a kind of a unspecified cancer. And that would be a, you know whether an HCC is picked up or not. So if we're having issues in capturing the diagnoses, then it's it makes sense that a payer would then, you know, because they're having to submit these diagnoses and they're tranched to the government, that they're going to look at it and say, well, maybe we've undercoded. You know, maybe there's things here. There, there's things that we've seen in the data where a patient will have, a, you know, an amputation in one year and not in the next year. So clearly the amputation is still there, right? We just haven't picked up the diagnosis. Um, so I think that part of that is, um, saying, well, we have an undercoding, so we need to capture that. But to Mike's point, do we need a balance of that? Are we, are we showing that we're trying to capture the accuracy of the patient population versus specifying only in one area or only one risk area that's going to be beneficial for the 
the plan that may skew the payments higher than the balance if you had it all together right. And, and Jana and, and Valerie, I mean, I think one of the things maybe we should also just remind the audience is that the Medicare, traditional Medicare system is as, as often referred to as a pay and chase system. So, um, and, and the payments are made after post-diagnosis, post-treatment. Post um, and the system was created and the coverage determinations and all of these things were created with an eye towards a system in which post-service payments are, are done. And if they're reviewed, they're audited later. And then if it turns out that they were wrong, uh, you know, there's some kind of a, a recoupment or an overpayment. And so it's all this kind of retrospective review. But Medicare Advantage is all done on a on a prospective basis, and and we can talk a little bit about prior authorizations and managed care. But the the notion is that it's managed care, and that it is um, you're thinking about the patient pre-service because you're scoring them, and you're getting a, a a slug of premium based on their conditions. And one of the things that I think is fundamental, or a fundamental hinge point in all of this, is that. So much of the Medicare system, including the coverage determinations and other things, are, are based on the traditional Medicare system, and they are then applied without a whole lot of thought to the Medicare Advantage system, which, is, as Valerie indicated at the beginning of this podcast, is going to be the dominant system within just a matter of a few years. And so many of the idiosyncrasies and kind of missteps, if you will, that I think we see in the compliance and investigations world, they arise in some ways because of the application of traditional Medicare concepts to this managed care system. And uh, that doesn't always work so well, but the government, you know, kind of determinedly moves forward as if the same structures can easily be applied to a system that's really 180 degrees from the other one. Excellent, excellent point. So kind of digging a little bit deeper on sort of the diagnosis codes and, and how things are sort of um, the focus and, and the concerns by the government and, and looking at it. If you have diagnoses that are listed, right, primary, secondary, et cetera, but there's no treatment for those diagnoses, or if you have, I know that HRAs, that the plans will go out to really try to gather more information on really what's happening with these patients um, and what their can, health conditions may be. And so they may have more information than is coming through from a claims perspective or from a care perspective what happens then? Like, is that, does that become, I mean, from you guys' perspective, is that, is that treated as somewhat suspect? Is that just par for the course because the information that's being sussed out by the plans in, in some ways can be just more detailed? What are you guys' thoughts on, on that? So um, I think you, you mentioned the health risk assessments and as HRAs are done, they kind of create the building blocks of the structure of how you're going to manage that patient. To Mike's point, if we think of it differently, how do we need to manage this patient? Okay, here are all the diagnoses that may be relevant to this patient. But if there's no treatment after that, if there's no interaction with those diagnoses after that, um, if they don't e aren't even picked up on any other claim, then they are in question on, you know, were they actually managed? If they weren't managed, then they're not going to be picked up or they shouldn't have been picked up, if that makes sense, um, from an HCC perspective. So that's where those adjustments um, on the back end can happen. Um, and, and is what auditors are looking for is, is their documentation and the rest of the record showing that, yes, this is a chronic issue that's being managed. And yes, this is an acute problem that, you know, that came up during the year. So um, I think, you know, if we can get to a point where, the payers are showing that kind of management of those diagnoses that they're coordinating that management with with the payer, you know, with the providers, making sure that everybody's managing those diagnoses. Then that's really getting in front of it, making sure it's coordinated and and the patient's taken care of. I think that's the intent of it, but it you know it 
gets we get lost in the details of what what we're capturing. And and I think that uh, you know there's sort of two points that I would make it kind of go in both directions. One is that from the plans perspective, and especially to go back to the demographics I was talking about earlier, where patients are are less educated and less well off and can't take time off. What they see is a patient who comes on Medicare Advantage and who has, let's just use an example. They have COPD. They have, um, you know, they have got uh, heart failure. They've got a bunch of conditions. That they've got diabetes, all of which ought to be captured as soon as they show up and included in the risk score because that patient is high risk. But what actually happens frequently is that the patient goes on but doesn't have the time or doesn't have the connections or doesn't have the wherewithal to get to a doctor right away or to have that HRA done. They, they have to work to make a living and all of that. And the first thing that happens to them is nine months in and that first year, that patient collapses with all of the health-related sequelae from the conditions that I just described and ends up in the ER and then in intensive care for which the payer obviously must pay. And the payer looks at that and says, now, wait a minute, I never had a chance to get this patient risk adjusted. The patient should have been risk adjusted. The patient has all sorts of risks, but what's really going to happen is I've gotten a relatively small standard premium payment for the patient. And if I'd only known we could have tried to manage this patient and avoided the catastrophe that was the first time that we ultimately found out about what this patient had. And that's a problem that the payers see acutely, especially given the level of churn, because if the patient is new every year, the same thing can happen every year to a different plan. So they're, they're very concerned about this and, and want to be able to manage that, that patient, but um, it's not always possible and it's becoming increasingly difficult, again, with a, with a broader, less well-educated um, patient population. It's not the fault of the patients. They're trying to make ends meet, and so they don't just go to a doctor to get you know, a physical exam. They don't have time for that. That's the problem on one end. On the other hand, and this is kind of where the disconnect is, OIG is sure, it appears, that the whole HRA process is just kind of just one level below fraud. And they've issued a report, in fact, this year in just this last month in July, um, in which they purport to say that HRAs uh, overstate the risks of the patients. And the way that they did that was to look after the fact to see whether those patients ultimately are shown to have the conditions that are noted on the HRA. So here you got the payers saying, we're just trying to identify the risks so that we can A, manage them, and B, that we're getting paid appropriately for the kinds of conditions and events that may occur to this sick patient. Meanwhile, OIG is saying that's a lot of balderdash. What they're doing on the HRAs is trying to get uh, a basis for risk adjusting upward just to make more money, and that when we audit these patients, they actually don't seem to have those conditions. And the middle ground of those, which nobody really wants to acknowledge, is that if the patients, you know, don't allow themselves to be managed for good reasons, but don't get managed, yeah, the conditions aren't going to show up until the catastrophe, but that's going to mean that the that if they did get an HRA, it's also possible that those conditions will go unmanaged for an extended period of time because the patient is not willing or able or they're not providers out there to provide the treatments code appropriately and identify the identify the risks. So this is just one of a number of government versus payer butting heads uh, that really needs to get resolved. What's the solution? I mean, is it outreach from the plans to the providers to ensure that they understand everything that was noted in the HRA? Is it, you know, I'm trying to figure out, it just seems like there's some barriers here to real transparency and really getting kind of the patients the care they need and frankly, the payments where they need to be for the patient's chronic condition. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think um, if you think of it as, you know, you've got your managed care payer and then you've got your primary care physician, right? And they're supposed to be somewhat of the hub of that total care, right? 
So then if the primary care physician, like if the plan is going out and doing an HRA, then they notify that primary care physician of all the things that are going on. That primary care physician needs to then manage all of those diagnoses and make sure that they're being handled, even if they're being submitted out and referred out to other specialists. So if the plan, you know, if the population health kind of model is utilized within this payer model, then I think we can coordinate care and do all of the things that we're supposed to do. I think it's what the intent even is on the fee-for-service side and where you see you know, chronic care management and principal care management being paid for now, that is just a precursor to this model that is intended for the physicians to, you know, these primary care physicians to really manage these diagnoses and to really push out these patients and really, you know, capture them, get them in, you know, even go out to them. There's uh, concepts that are in the new MA um, final rule regarding health equity and behavioral health and things like that, that are really saying, let's go outside of the bounds of just having the patient come in. Let's make sure we're going to them and giving the, the easiest way for you to access the care. And that may take additional services and additional means in order to do that. Yeah. And I think actually what I'm seeing is that plans are compelled in the competitive world in which they live to spend significant sums on getting service people through the plan or, or contracted out to reach out to patients and, and make sure that they're taking advantage of the plan benefits that they have, that they understand the plan benefits that they have, more hand-holding, more management, as, as Valerie indicates, in order to try to keep people healthier. And that is ultimately the goal. There's a lot of skepticism about this in the community, but the payers, it's really in their interests to have happy patients. And the reason for that, as we've talked about already, is that from an economics point of view, the best thing that a, a MA plan can do is to have somebody come on board, get them risk adjusted, and that they never leave the plan until they pass away, hopefully 10 or 15 or 20 years afterward. That is a model in which even if they are providing services in this way and keeping the patient happy, the dollars flow uh, and, and the amount of sort of transient work that needs to be done when a new patient comes on is, of course, no longer needed. So it's a, it's a real advantage to the plans to do this. And so what we see is a lot more services being provided on the, you know, at the plan level, at the payer level, um, to to try to make sure that their participants are happy and that they're going to stay. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, that's that is very much the model. It's good for the enrollee. It's good for uh, the plan. It's good for brokers. It's good for everybody, and it's good for providers too because they have consistency uh, with payers and and with the patients, uh, not having to jump network to network. Dealing with sort of some of the awkward attachment of traditional Medicare concepts to <laughs> Medicare Advantage in the past, and, and probably, I don't know, five years ago, it was, you know, in dealing with sort of regulatory or billing issues for MA plans, it wasn't a given that you would look to traditional Medicare guidance. We've mentioned the national coverage determinations or NCDs or the local coverage determinations or LCDs when you were dealing with Medicare Advantage, because at least a while ago, it was just treated as a different payment program with different coverage really being, you know, applicable to it. So that has changed, as I understand it. So Mike, because I know you've been, you've gotten a little bit into this and, and Valerie, I welcome your thoughts on this as well. How is the focus on, in the Medicare Advantage space, how is the focus on Medicare NCDs and LCDs, its guidance for the MA plans change more recently? Yeah, it's changed dramatically this year because the final rule has, is, is going to say that it is an absolute requirement that the NCDs and the LCDs, specifically the LCDs, which um, had, had in the past not had the same, uh, carry the same weight as the NCDs, but they are to be followed and that the ability of a plan to uh, try to manage care by, for example, step therapies that would 
first try one thing and then then something that was more expensive, if that wasn't called out in the NCD or LCD, it is now under the final rule that treatment, that final treatment, the expensive one, if it's a covered service, there's no uh, ability on the part of the uh, plan to deny it. And I think where the rubber hits the road, it's the same problem in all of managed care, but it's going to be a bigger problem given the size of Medicare Advantage is that you know, managed care is by definition managed. And frequently that involves utilization management, which one hopes at least is evidence-based and that there is an effort to see whether particular utilization is, you know, out of, out of where it ought to be. But of course, utilization management is the thing that in some respects, patients hate the absolute most. And the examples that are around out there are many of somebody who is advised to have a treatment by a particular physician. And then the plan, the faceless plan says, sorry, uh, that's not a covered service, or you have to do this other thing first and denies the prior authorization for that claim. And that it happened to all of us, I know, and it's very, very frustrating when it does. And at the same time, the managed care plans would say, but that's what you asked us to do under Medicare Part C, we're supposed to not just pay and chase, we're supposed to manage care and work with professionals on getting the best care at the right price to, to the patients. So OIG has clearly taken a position this year, again, in the final rule that prior authorizations are deemed a, a barrier to care or have been, in their view, found to be a barrier to care, that patients are not getting the care that they should get under the NCDs and LCDs, and that as a result, OIG strongly recommended that prior authorizations, that whole regime be reviewed by CMS and, and the uh, oversight of it strengthened. So this is a real compliance issue, I think, for some of our clients and some of our listeners about how to, how to oversee that. But speaking from experience in cases that I have, the NCDs and the LCDs, again, especially the LCDs, are written to make sense in the world of pay and chase post-service payment. And they're often not written in a way that is that gives the, the plan the ability to decide in the first instance whether that treatment should or shouldn't be, be given. Um, it's just the language isn't there for, they're not guidelines based in the, in the way that, that we would expect evidence-based guidelines to work. And so once again, we've got butting heads of the plans and the government in some respects, because of the incommensurability between what is being used coming out of traditional Medicare and being applied to this uh, managed care system. So, Valerie, is there a different view of kind of why the government has taken this up from a from a prior authorization and sort of really looked at the NCDs and LCDs as kind of being a, a threshold of care? I think it's easier to look to that guidance, though that guidance doesn't cover everything. I think that should be known. The NCDs and LCDs don't address all codes or all services, but for those that they do, you know, they're typically behind technology. They are not cutting edge. It takes a while to get them created and agreed to. They have to go through a comment period, the LCDs do. And so it, it tends to have a lag, in other words. So there may be compliance issues that come about because people are on the front end of technology and they're doing something different than what the LCD states. So it, there's a rub there. For commercial payers, we have not generally utilized these LCDs, though we've said, well, this might be a basis. And they're often referencing clinical literature that would support the reason why they're giving some certain kind of standard of care, if you will, that we usually have to follow in order to be considered medically necessary. So we'll look to those, but we may say, well, now this is done differently. And so maybe a payer is looking at it differently. And you'll see trends for private payers to start allowing things more quickly than Medicare does. And so if Medicare is going to be the driver of even commercial kind of statutes within the Medicare Advantage plan, it's likely to creep over into our commercial plans as well because they're going to want kind of a continuity there. But at the same time, it may cause issues. Like if we only have 
eventually 40% of our Medicare patients that are within a population that is truly different from the Medicare Advantage population, will those LCDs and NCDs really um, be impactful to this other population? Will they even mean any, the same thing? The reason why we have local coverage determinations is based on regional needs. You cannot apply that to a national standard. So it, it'll be interesting to watch how this shifts and changes, and it may even have to create, you know, they may have to create a third party that has a clinical determination um, for these because you know, if you have majority within the commercial payers, the question is, are you really meeting the needs of those patients that are under the Medicare Advantage plan? And, and CMS would say that they're trying to do that. You know, there is this uh, effort to, to say that if there is no guideline, if there's no coverage determination, NCD or LCD, then the plans can look to, uh, if they can point to kind of this majoritarian uh, point that you're making, uh, Valerie, that there is a guideline out there that is well accepted and they can turn to that um, instead. And, you know, one hopes in a sense that that's the way it goes because national coverage determinations, just by virtue of the way that they are created, they lag behind technology and the latest developments pretty significantly. You know, they're notice and comment rulemaking in the end. Fundamentally, that's what they are. And that takes a long time. I think we saw this recently, and I'm not sure it's the best model, but with the drugs for Alzheimer's, which the FDA uh, approved in, in sort of uh, an odd way, and, and but said that, they, that it could be used. And the cost for the plans was going to be just an enormous amount of money, but there's this FDA approval. What does that mean? And so some people said, well, you know, we really ought to get an NCD out there to deal with the appropriate criteria for, for this drug. But in the meantime, the plan said the drug is so expensive that if we give it to every early Alzheimer's patient, you're just going to essentially, you know, the treasury is going to disappear. So it, it demonstrated that the system doesn't really have safety valves. I mean, what ended up happening is the plans ultimately decided, you know, when, that, that they weren't going to pay for it. Um, uh, Medicare took a position on it, but not through an NCD. It probably ended up in the right place, but it was a mess. And it suggests that we ought to figure out a better way to do this. So query whether sort of applying and sort of now overlaying things that are very traditional Medicare-based, very fee-for-service-based, concepts onto what was intended to be a different program isn't sort of making that much like and sort of burdened by some of the the processes that I think were intended, frankly, the absence of those processes were intended to make Medicare Advantage more nimble, able to be more innovative in what they're covering and what they're caring for. You guys thoughts on that? I mean, is that a bit of what's happening now? Well, one thing I'd, I'd say, though, is that when you look at when a provider is being challenged on something that's related to an LCD, it's often overturned at the administrative law judge level because it doesn't hold any weight because the physician's prerogative is, you know, to take care of that patient. And if you can produce the reason why you have medical necessity to do something, then that service should be paid. So I think it'll be interesting to see how much weight these LCDs carry on the Medicare Advantage side because they shouldn't hold any more weight than they do on the fee-for-service side. So what really should plans and, frankly, providers be doing? Do providers need to be taking all these? Do they need to educate themselves up? Do they need to have an expert in-house that can be educating them not only, obviously, on proper diagnosis coding and what to do there or have a coding expert that sort of in the wings to review all of their stuff based on what we talked about with regard to the risk adjustment issue, but also now to sort of educate them up or make sure that they understand what the expectation is related to LCDs and what's, what's going to end up being covered. I mean, fundamentally, that isn't something that I think anybody wanted providers being worried about, but rather, as you said, Valerie, just a second ago, they should be focusing on patient care and what is in the end medically necessary or what makes sense for that patient. So my question is really, what are providers and plans to do with this new application? Yeah, so I'd say from a provider perspective um, that educating them on how to 
uh, capture those diagnoses, how to document those diagnoses and what is expected from them. The challenges they're frustrated already about EM guidelines and all the changes that have occurred and having to use utilize an EHR and they're understaffed and they don't have enough nurses and they have so much going on that they don't have time. I, we heard it yesterday on a training. I don't have time to use the most specified di diagnosis. So it, it is a challenge across the board to even get the physicians to do this. If you have a nurse, you know, a, like a clinical auditor that's capturing diagnoses based on the documentation and, and helping the physician understand what needs to be documented in order to capture that, as long as the physician's documenting those diagnoses, and then it's captured on the back end by a coder, that's fine. But we, we don't want to have people inserting diagnoses that are not really documented and, and capturing them that way. That's the challenge is along the way, it tends to run in the, in the wrong direction as it's applied. Yeah, I, I guess um, I, I kind of, I don't mean to be on a, a downer, but I, I think one of the real challenges that we are going to have to address at some point is that I think from the plan's perspective, while Medicare Advantage is, a, is the growth opportunity, and so they're very keen on on providing more benefits and you know dental and vision and a grocery card and all sorts of things to try to increase the number of patients that they have, they feel very squeezed in terms of all of the requirements and the amount of premium and you know the example that I gave about uh, the patient who collapses in the emergency room. So they feel that they're on a very, very tight margin. Meanwhile, the government appears to have the view that actually the players are making bank on Medicare Advantage and that there's lots of money sloshing around because the Medicare Advantage plans are misusing management like prior authorizations, uh, risk adjustment, upward scores, and so forth. Uh, to to increase the amount of money that they're going to get from the government and that there really needs to be a much tighter regime. And I'm not quite sure where this immovable object is, is going to meet this irresistible force, but so long as the two are, if that's the way they see this, and, and all one has to do is to look at the OIG reports that came out just this year, uh, they certainly think that's the way it is. I think we're going to have problems, and I think uh, compliance is going to be key and there's going to be a lot of work for compliance officers because the government is going to be looking for that extra money that they think is there. And the plans are going to be saying, we did this by the book. And as it is, we're, we're, you know, we're scraping to get some profit out of this. So I, I do think that well-run compliance programs in which risks are identified, prioritized, and addressed from a False Claims Act perspective, because it really is the elephant in the room, there's just the amount of money and the relators out there and and so forth. The answer to that is to prioritize those risks and to address them in a way that shows that, at least in good faith, the plan believes that this is a way that is appropriate and consistent with the regulations. Good relationships between compliance and legal and the business, I think, are absolutely essential and a lot of communication between the three. Yeah, and that sort of segues nicely into kind of a, a final thought of how can, you know, Foley and PYA be helpful to plans and frankly, and providers in, in providing some of that expertise based on sort of the knowledge base, I think, that we have and that PYA has. And then also some of the experiences, obviously, that, I mean, Mike, you and Valerie are running into frequently now. Tell us how you see, and Mike, you've touched on it, but how, how can Foley and PYA be useful or helpful in that? Sure. So um, from a PYA perspective, we can provide education to providers, directly to providers on ICD-10 coding and documentation. Um, we can assist in a, in a RADV audit, like a mock audit for a RADV audit that is for the payers specifically. Uh, so sometimes small plans will come to us and looking for a RADV mock audit to see if, how they how they look. We can also help from an operations and compliance perspective to make sure that the model is helping capture all of those uh, diagnoses and and the risk and quality measures, et cetera. 
Yeah, and and you know, one of the things we love to do is to partner up with organizations like PYA. I, I think that the mock RADV audit is a, is a terrific idea, and we've we've worked with with you guys and some others to do that, and maybe to do it under privilege. You know, which is that that this is directed by the general counsel's office to see what would happen if these things, if we did get an audit, reports back to uh, with with work by the law firm and in coordination with the general counsel's office. And that way we can have a candid meeting internally as to where we find the risks to be popping up. Clearly, we've, we've had a, a fair amount of experience with a number of payers on the issues of the day. And I think we're, we're pretty uh, cognizant of the way that OIG and DOJ looks at these. Clearly, one of the things we try to do is when a False Claims Act case is brought, we do everything we possibly can to persuade the government that this is not the case they want to intervene on. And while nobody wants to have to deal with relators, it's a whole lot easier, easier dealing with relators counsel in a normal civil litigation than it is when you've got a full-blown government investigation and grand jury subpoenas and OIG subpoenas and so forth. So we've worked very hard with our clients to try to deal with those important data points. But prospectively, the combination of having an experienced law firm working with a well-experienced uh, consulting firm in coordination with the general counsel's office and the compliance department can, I think, do wonders in identifying going forward, what are the risks that we have and how can we prioritize them and how can we get to them now before a relator or the government comes calling? I think that's an excellent final note. So, um, I want to thank you, Valerie, for participating in the podcast today. And Mike, thank you so much. Really appreciate both of you and, and your insights into this very hot topic. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everyone, for a great discussion. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank our listeners to the Let's Talk Compliance podcast series of Healthcare Law Today, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare and life sciences industry. We encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. Please visit Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday, all one word.com, and pyapc.com. If you liked this show, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to rate us five stars. Until next time on the Let's Talk Compliance series, I'm Angie Caldwell at PYA. And I'm Jana Kalarik of Foley & Lardner. Thanks so much for listening.